historical account. Those of you who haven't been here, the previous thing we were studying was the parable of the wedding feast and who was accepting the invitation, who was rejecting the invitation, how the king handled the acceptance and rejectance of uh, the invitation to the wedding feast and the application that Jesus made. Now, there are certain texts in Scripture, certain verses, certain statements, which are bridges from one place to another. These bridges often are sort of left uh, illegitimate children, all right? And so this is the finishing statement for the parable of the wedding feast, but it's also the beginning statement for what we're about to go into. So I want us to read it. It's verse 15. It's not in your bulletin, but let's start with verse 15. We're right at the end of the parable of the wedding feast. And this is how the application of that parable, uh, this is how that application affects the people listening. It says this about that parable and its effect on the people. It says, verse 15, this is the word of God eternally true. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, or excuse me, I'm not in the right chapter. Although it's funny because it's the chief scribes and the scribes. All right. It says, verse 15, verse uh, chapter 22, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. All right, so that's the result of the, wedding, the parable of the wedding feast. They're so angry at him, so furious, so livid, that they decide that they're going to go and plot how they can trap him. Now, here comes the trap, verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. Now, what's going on here? Well, we're in the final chapters of Matthew. And you know the end of the story. The end of the story is the resurrection. You know the penultimate end of the story comes right before the resurrection because it's why you have to have the resurrection. And that is Jesus Christ is executed. And so the point of the story is to show you why the end happens. And the reason the end happens is that Jesus is dealing with the powers that be in such a way that he forces them to execute him. He's not a passive person in this process. And if you skip over these chapters of the book of Matthew, you'll think that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this man, gentle, mild, meek Jesus, all of a sudden is killed. And isn't that how they always treat gentle, mild, and meek Jesus? They kill him. Well, look, Jesus is not gentle, and he's not quiet, and he's not meek. Now, yes, he is. Jesus is very gentle. But he's gentle with souls that are weighed under their sins. He's gentle with the poor. He's gentle with the people who are not. But with the people who are, he is absolutely ruthless in dealing with them. In other words, 
The Bible always shows us that God deals with us according to our pride. And that the humble God lifts up and that the proud he tears down. And so we're in the middle of the excavation process of the building of the church of Jesus Christ. And in order to build the church of Jesus Christ, Christ has to have the preeminence. And in order for him to have the preeminence, those men who have been using the church of God for their own benefit, for their own pride, for their own security and position, have to be torn down. And that's why he'll die. Now, really, he dies as a sacrifice for us. But there is a point to his death. And the point to his death is that the very people that God has called to himself are the ones who crucify him, who yell out crucify him, who say his blood be on our shoulders and on the shoulders of our children for generations to come. And they're led by their religious leaders whose duty it is to cultivate and to protect and to call everyone to worship the very man that they're going to kill. And so what is the process? Well, we're in the, in the middle of it. Jesus tells parable after parable after power, parable that is a powerful roundhouse to the head of the Jewish religious leaders. It's very clear. So he gets done one parable and they go off to plot and then they come back and they're going to go after him and they come back with some questions. Now, immediately after this comes another confrontation. It's relentless. It goes on and on and on. The next confrontation is what? The next one is the Sadducees come and the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. All right. The Sadducees come and say a man had one, two, three, four, or a woman had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven husbands. Now, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And, and the implicit thing behind what they're asking is, I mean, this is stupid. There's no wife after death. But go ahead, tell us, whose wife will she be? All right? That's the Sadducees' attempt. But this week, we're at the Pharisees' attempt. Now, the first thing to notice is who actually comes. Did you notice it's not the Pharisees? Look at the text. Who is it? Have you ever noticed that it's the young men that always get the dirty work? Right? The officers stay pristine. And the funkies go out and tear down the engine. Right? The Ph.D. candidates do the grunt work, and then the professor publishes. And maybe you'll get a mention. Right? And so the Pharisees are getting to the point here where they're very, very intent about getting him, Jesus, getting him. And so it's a nasty job, and they send out their disciples to do it. They don't go themselves. To a certain degree, it's probable that the identity of the people that came was somewhat hidden. Don't assume, because the text says the Pharisees' disciples, that the people all knew who these guys were. After all, the whole point in sending the disciples is so that it's not clear who is doing it, right? And with them is a group that is only mentioned here in Matthew, and that group is called the Herodians. Now, from the context and the name, we are able to make a guess about who the Herodians were. Uh, Herod was the local ruler. He stood in the place of Rome. He was the local manifestation of the Roman emperor and the Roman empire. And so Herodians, in the context of the Jews, would have been those people who were known for not being nationalistic supporters of the Zealots who came along every few years and, and, and tried to lead a rebellion, the most notorious 
being back in uh, when Jesus was about six years old, A.D. 6, all right, periodically there was popular uprisings against the hated Roman Empire in, uh, in among the Jews. And uh, the Herodians, by virtue of their name, are obviously not popular, not common people, not supporters of the zealots who led the rebellions. Their identity is in being complicit with the hated foreign empire. So you can maybe think of it as being the Iraq police today. All right. The only way you get to be a police is passing through being vetted by Americans, the American, the hated foreign oppressor. All right. And so the Herodians come and they are. Their primary allegiance is to Rome, not to their own people, and the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, when they come, what do they say? Look at the text. It says, they sent their disciples and along with the Rodians saying, and here it is, teacher. Now, what does teacher mean? Well, teacher would be like professor, uh, sir. It's a way of showing deference. It's not Tim. It's Pastor Bailey. You understand that? And so it's sneaky. They're coming, purporting to be, copping a posture to be respectful to this, to this great leader. In other words, they're not willing to show their real hearts. They're hiding their hearts and they're coming to him claiming to honor him. Now, do they honor him really? Well, the answer is no, because we know they went away to plot how to get him and now they're coming back. There's no honor in their hearts. They want to kill him. It's been clear for quite a while. But they say, teacher, reverend, pastor, you know. What else do they say? Well, they begin to flatter him. They say, we know. Now, there are four things they know. What are the four things? We know you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. That's the four things they say. Teacher, all right? And they bow before him. We know four things about you. You are truthful. You teach the way of God in truth. You defer to no one, and you are not partial to any. Now, you're truthful. Was Jesus truthful? Well, yeah, he was truthful. He was delightfully truthful, right? The reason everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount is it's more truth than you've ever had force-fed to you at any point in your life. It's hard to imagine sitting there and being able to take it in. It's so much truth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. You have heard that it said that a man shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that any man that looks at a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery. Okay, that's enough with truth. Jesus was truthful. I have a friend, Paul Cote, who, uh, in the filth of my sin, I still witness to him when we live together. And uh, as a result of that, a couple days later, he took his Bible and he went out and sat on the front cement porch of our apartment complex with his Bible, opened it up, how I don't know, to the Sermon on the Mount and became a Christian. Jesus is truthful. And sincere consciences, and the world is filled with sincere consciences, recognize the truth. All men are liars, including me. 
And the reason you know that is you just pick up their biographies and read them. Jesus was truthful. The Bible's truthful. The Bible carefully and scrupulously records all the sins and failures of its heroes and heroines. Jesus was truthful. We can all agree to that. What's the second thing that's said about him is they're flattering him. Well, the second thing that's said is you are truthful and second, teach the way of God in truth. Now, what's the difference between the two? It seems like they're saying the same thing, right? Well, this second statement is not just a disinterested statement that this is an honest man that he teaches the truth. Now what they're saying, and these guys are really slick, aren't they? They're saying we, the Pharisees, the disciples, we as the religious leaders, as the protectors of the cult, as the ones who make sure that the church is orthodox and that all its rules are carefully followed, that all the utensils are clean, that the stained glass windows don't have cracks, that the, the, the chasuble and the robes and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the religious leaders, you're not just truthful, but you teach the way of God in truth. In other words, we put our papal or cardinal or archbishop, we put our imprimatur on you, not just being truthful, but actually being proper truth in the matter of our religion. It seems weird, doesn't it, that they'd say that? Because, of course, that's the very thing that they think that Jesus is not doing, isn't it? And yet, what they do is they very carefully cultivate a posture towards Jesus that causes everybody to let their hair down and feel like there's amicability here. And, you know, they're completely passive-aggressive. They're completely something that they claim they're not, and they aren't the thing they claim. And they're laying it on thick. You're truthful. And, and as the religious leaders, as, as, as the stated clerk of Presbytery, I, I tell you that I believe that you properly uh, exegete the Westminster Standards and therefore the Word of God. You're orthodox. That's what they're saying. You're truthful. You're orthodox. Now, what's the third one? The third one is, you defer to no one. Now, if I were to ask you to whom Jesus did not defer, who is the first person that would pop to your mind? Who? The Pharisees. Eh, all right. I don't like that answer. I mean, it's true. Who else? Who? Herod, who else? Pilate. Right? That's not the first person that pops into my mind. <laughs> I love you, Mick. Was that you that said that? Absolutely. Come on, people. Live in Christ's skin yourself. Who is the first person that you would defer to in your life? Your mama! <laughs> Jesus would defer to Mary. He said, Mary. Yes, of course. You remember when she comes to him and the house is so filled that you can't move. They can't even get inside. So the message is sent in to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are here. 
That's the first person that we should defer to, isn't it? Our mother. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said what? Who is my mother? Now, is that a positive statement to a mother? There's a mother to be here, and she's looking at me like... No, it's not a positive statement at all. Listen, if a man will not defer to his mother, he will defer to no one. Am I right about that? If a man will not defer to his mother, he will defer to no one. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he answered his own question. And his own question is, his mother and his brothers are those who what? Have prayed the sinner's prayer, right? Is that what he said? Those who have been baptized in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. Is that what he said? Those who have been circumcised. Is that what he said? No, what he said was those who what? Do the will of my Father. So it is true Jesus didn't defer to anyone. And you're right. He didn't defer to the Pharisees. He didn't defer to the Sadducees. He didn't defer to the chief elders. He didn't defer to anybody, did he? He didn't, did he? Come on, did he? No, he didn't. So are they speaking truth? Yeah, they are. And then there's one more. Teacher, we know that you're truthful. You teach the way of God in truth. You defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Now let me ask you a question. Can these four things be said about you or about your husband, your father, your mother? That they're truthful, they teach the way of God in truth, that they defer to no one, and that they are not partial to anyone. You remember Lady Justice? Lady Justice is holding a scale. You remember that? And as she holds the scale, what is the unique characteristic of the image? She has a blindfold on. Why does Lady Justice have a blindfold on? Lady Justice has a blindfold on because in the giving out of justice, the principal thing we want is what? We want impartiality, and the symbol of that impartiality and justice is her blindfold because she does not look in the face of man. That's the actual meaning of the Greek here. It says impartial, you know, not a regarder of persons, but the Greek is you don't look in the face. You're not in the face of man. In other words, you keep your eyes down. You don't look in the face. You don't see the gold. You don't see the diamonds. You don't know what the title is. You do what is truthful, what is just, and what is right. Now, there's a great conceit about people who live in a democracy, and especially the United States. And the conceit is that we've gotten rid of graft. We've gotten rid of bribery. We have a system of government that makes us immune to that stuff. And so we look down on Africa and other, and we keep an index of the most corruptible governments. And, you know, Kenya's typically up near the top. You know why? Because they take bribes. But we don't, right? It's absolutely ludicrous. There's never been a, a time in history that governments have not been entirely corrupt. And the, the present three candidates that we have for president, nobody's wanting to vote for them because they think they're incorruptible. 
I mean, Obama, who's the best of the lot, I mean, on that issue, <laughs> all right, what does he have? He's got this, like, real estate profit, just like Hillary Clinton's profit. You remember that? You know? How is it that they're all rich? Well, godliness pays today, right? Justice pays today. All that's changed in the United States is the method of giving and receiving brides has become ultra-sophisticated and is a moving target, just like drugging in sports. And, you know, laws are made. You learn to escape the laws. New laws are made. In other words, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. We have a whole set of hypocritical laws. They're always updated to get the latest scheme. And we stay one, ahead, one step ahead of it. And there's always the hope that somebody might get busted. And that's very different from places where they don't even bother being hypocritical about it. The cop stops you. He holds out his hand. So in the degree that we have hypocrisy here, we are above Kenya. Okay? Now, you're all with me here. I mean, I'm not being cynical. I'm being honest. This is the nature of justice. It's always perverted. We know that. All right? It doesn't mean that justice doesn't happen. I happen to know a judge who is strongly pro-life, strongly against sodomite marriage, and is a Democrat. Goes against type. There must be something of integrity in that man. Right? I'm just talking about party platforms, that's all. All right? I'm not a Republican, don't worry. And I'm not a Democrat. All right. You're all right with me on the courts. You're all right with me on politicians. But now I want you to move into the church. I want to ask you the question. In the church, is justice and truth perverted because of looking in the eyes of men? Is that a threat in the church? Can you think of anything in Scripture that addresses it? What should pop into your mind? Well, right away, it should pop into your mind that Solomon was corrupted in his old age. Why? Because of his many wives. Were they pretty? They were pretty. How about Samson? What corrupted Samson? A face. Gorgeous face. It's always true that the face that a man is most susceptible to is the face of feminine beauty. And that's not a condemnation of woman. God made her that way, and that's good. I love it. But a regard for the face of man. Now you come to the New Testament, and this is what is said about Jesus, that he did not have regard for the face of men. You go to the book of James. What does it say in James? Do you remember what it says in James? James says what? Let's read it together. It's in James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Did God not choose the poor of this world to be heirs of the things? Did God not choose the most despicable nation that there was on the face of the earth to call his own? Did God not refer to Israel as being a naked child lying in its blood and afterbirth on the ground naked? And said, that is you, Israel. The reason that God chose Israel was that Israel was disgusting. The Bible says that God has chosen the poor of the world. The Bible does reveal a preferential option for the poor. And you only hear this insofar as you recognize your own poverty. In Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes and says, My brothers, consider who you are. Not many of you are wise in the world's eyes. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are rich. Not many of you are muckety-mucks. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The things that are not to confound the things that are. James says, the poor God has given his blessings to. How is it that evangelical evangelism today always goes for the rich? Is it because we have a streak of masochism? We know God has said that it won't be the rich that will come to him. So why do we go after the cheerleaders and jocks? Why? Do we not believe what God has said? Do we not believe that God is always in the interest of choosing the people that are despised in the eyes of the world to give the gift of faith? Is it maybe that we really don't care about faith? What we care is that we are able to maintain our position, our status, my salary, if you will, and that we need other rich people to help us maintain the pastor's salary in this beautiful, glorious building we have. Who laughed? Listen, people, I want you to understand something. When you come in this building and you see gross chemical drums on the walls, that's what these are. They're cut in half. All right. I want you to understand that this was done so that the elders would not have to look in the face of their congregation, would be blindfolded and would do what honors God. And these ugly things on the walls are the most precious possession in our church. They are to this church what stained glass windows are to every other church. And if you have the eyes that love Christ and see him as he is, you will see these as the most beautiful part of this church. You'll look at the four and you'll say, I love the four. And you'll look at the platform and you'll say, I love the platform. And you'll look at me and you'll say, well, <laughs> you'll look back and you'll see grossness and chairs. And will they fall over on people? And, 
And you'll hear the rain coming down, and then you'll realize there's a pipe that takes all that rain down right there, and that pipe makes lots of noise inside that concrete. And you'll say, couldn't they put up stained glass windows? You understand, there is a connection between wealth and truth and salvation. And those of you that are sociologists, it's a negative correlation. God himself says that it is the poor and the humble and the black who will be given faith, and it is the rich and the white and the sophisticated with PhDs who will be passed over when it comes to faith. Come on, come on, come on. Am I telling the truth? Come on. Am I telling the truth? I mean, is that what the Bible says? Come on, is it what the Bible says? There's Mick again. We always have a court jester. And that's, that's Mick. But I don't care what Mick says because he doesn't matter. He's a funky. So what I want to know is you rich people. Do you agree with me? <laughs> I love you guys. I love you. Listen. In a very perverse way, I'm going to read to you the one who, as much as anybody else in the history of the Western world, represents the wealth and the sophistication of the Western world. He is the Renaissance man of the time of the Reformation. He is the man that when Luther said no, he said maybe. And when Luther said yes, he said might be. He's the man that gave us the critical edition of the Greek text of the New Testament. He is the man above any other man who represents the wealth of the Western world. He is Erasmus of Rotterdam. And he wrote a book called In Praise of Folly. You've heard of it, right? And here's how that book ends. This is one of the last couple of pages, and he says this. He says, To sum up, or I shall be pursuing the infinite, it is quite clear that the Christian religion has a kind of kinship with folly in some form, though it has none at all with wisdom. If you want proof of this, first... Consider the fact that the very young and the very old women and simpletons. Man, he's a part of that ancient patriarchal world. How could he put women with simpletons? Listen to it again. If you want proof of this, first consider the fact that the very young and the very old, women and simpletons, are the people who take the greatest delight in sacred and holy things. And are therefore always found nearest the cross, led there doubtless solely by their natural instinct. Is that a commendation or is that ridicule? Come on, tell me. It's a commendation. Is it a compliment or is it an insult? Do you want to be a man or a woman when you get done reading that? Men? Which do you want to be? Come on. You want to be a woman. That's right. That's right. 
Do you want to be poor or rich? Which do you want to be? Poor, right? Right? Come on. Do you want to be poor? Do you want to be a simpleton or do you want to be a Ph.D.? Which do you want? A simpleton. Now, is what he wrote there contrary to Scripture or is it in agreement with Scripture? It is in agreement with Scripture. Now, Jesus has said to not defer to anyone and to not look in the face of the person he's dealing with. There are two applications to this, of this. Number one, if if you have any position of leadership authority, you must follow Jesus and you must not give preference to certain people based on the way that they can make your life better. Is that right? absolutely right. You're a professor. You're a mother. You like boys better than girls. And so your little daughter grows up with you being nasty to her. No, you can't do that. You can't have a favorite son, can you? No, you can't do that. You are not to give preference to one person over another. This is clear from Scripture. Okay? So whatever position of authority and responsibility you have, you are to follow Jesus. You are not to defer to anyone. And you are not to give preferential treatment to those people who have the ability of paying you well, the ability of making you happier, the ability of making you look good, the ability of, you know, he's my friend, you know. Nick got me to come to the grand opening of Procure this week. And uh, the reason Nick had me there is because with uh, Baron Hill and Mayor Cruzan and... uh, And Peggy Welch and the University of Pennsylvania professor and all these people, Nick had me there because I made Nick look good. That's a joke, guys. It was purely affection on Nick's part that had me there. So is that godly? Yeah. Nick could have just hobnobbed with muckety mucks, but he chose to identify with a fat 54-year-old, 6'2", 250-pound preacher. And in Bloomington, that's not high up on the status scale, especially if his name is Tim Bailey. I'm I'm serious about this. Nick honored me by inviting me there where I didn't belong. You need to be very careful and see who you really want to be at the place where all the important people are next to you. Adam invited me to his graduation up in Indy. All the muckety-mucks there. And then I made an ass of myself. Publicly. Ask him about it. And he knew I was going to do it. You know why? Because there was a woman that got up and spoke positively, and they spoke positively about her because she advocates the killing of unborn children. In a group of doctors, many of whom had taken the Hippocratic Oath They honored her for that. And so you can imagine, I spoke briefly, surgically, but I wouldn't be silent. So who do you want next to you? Some man like me? Or do you want Mayor Cruzan? Now, this is the final application. Wherever you go, you need to not be a respecter of persons, and you need to not give preference to the people that make you appear larger in the world's eyes. But here's the second thing. If you're smart, you're going to choose elders who have no regard for who you are and how much money you have. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Better, do you understand this? 
Your health depends upon a doctor who does not allow you to keep your clothes on when you walk into the office. Now, you all get it when I talk about doctors, right? Yeah, that's part of going to the doctor. It's very humiliating, but everyone has to do it because that's necessary. And I say, so why do you think that when it comes to preachers and elders, they should be people who are absolutely sterile, let you keep your drapes on, and never ask you intrusive questions, and never tell you to do anything, and never, ever, ever rebuke you? How does that work? So, your pastors and elders, what are they like? Do they walk around giving time to the rich people? Do they give time to the white people and they have no time for the black people and the yellow people and the red people? What kind of leaders do you have when it comes to the care of your soul? Are they respecter of persons? Listen, people, you need to be a careful student of the status that you surround your life with. You need to know yourself better than anybody else possibly could. And you need to know precisely where it is that you're enticed to defer to men and to consider their face. You need to know yourself inside and out. Does that make sense? So that you know where your weakness is, so that you know where you're susceptible to being scratched in the air. Don't you remember, that's what Paul says. The time will come when they won't put up with sound doctrine, but rather will surround themselves with preachers that will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. You want leaders who make you uncomfortable. Right? Because would you go to a doctor that didn't make you uncomfortable? No! So why do you take such care for your body and none for your soul? So we surround ourselves with preachers who flatter us and, and kowtow to us and, and they're Presbyterians, for heaven's sakes. And we're not even aware of the pecking order of denominations. You realize this is a more dangerous denomination than Pentecostals? Because the Pentecostals convert to charismatic, the charismatic to assembly of God, the assembly of God to Baptist, the Baptist to Methodist, the Methodist to Presbyterian, and then when you want to become president, you become an Episcopalian. I mean, everybody knows this. Bishop Moore, who died recently and had been the head of St. John the Divine in New York City, was once asked, or an ancestor of his who was wealthy and Episcopalian was asked, you know, is salvation found outside of the Episcopal Church? And his response quote was, salvation may be found outside of the Episcopal Church, but if it is, no true gentleman would care to avail himself of it, unquote. Do you realize that in the Presbyterian Church today that you are in a denomination that has high status among the people you care about, and that is intellectuals? You realize the PCA is the denomination of doctors and lawyers and architects. Are you suspicious of the PCA because of that? Now, I know this isn't denominational. I am. This is my home. I'm talking about my home. All right. What about your car? Do you realize that the way you signal that your wife has arrived is by having her bleach her hair blonde and drive an SUV? Come on. Does car indicate status to you? Are you suspicious? When I started driving a Lexus, did you condemn me? Did you think I couldn't be trusted to be your pastor? Come on. You remember that. 
Did somebody answer? My wife said yes. Listen, men, cars are today to what horses used to be. And you read old stories and you know how the horses are described. The car you drive sends huge amounts of messages about whether you honor God or whether you honor men. Okay? We all know this. We know it. And it's, I have to stop. The Bible tells us that it is always our habit to surround ourselves with leaders who will flatter us and who will get us what we want. And very few of us are ahead of the game and realize the sinfulness of our hearts and what we want and how those leaders can lead us. I've dealt in stuff like riches. And that's a placeholder, but it may be that what you want isn't riches. What you really want is you want to be able to marry a certain woman. So you show up at the church where her parents go hoping to get her. It may be that what you really want to be known as is a pious Christian. And so you hang out with the pastor because that will give you a reputation for godliness. There are many devious ways that we can pull off what we want. Here's the deal. God knows my heart and he knows your heart. He knows the degree to which what I'm preaching is what I think will make me successful. He knows when elders are sitting in meetings saying, let's not discipline them because they're afraid they'll be left holding the mortgage on this building. He knows when the people that write the checks have their consciences bound to how much they give to the church and so resent writing the checks. He knows the motivations of the deacons. He knows why you gave such a cheap gift to the next couple to get married, because why don't they stop marrying? He knows why you gave a chip gift for the baby shower, because why don't they stop having babies? He knows you. And you need to realize that God misses nothing with us. And that what is said about his son is he was truthful. He taught the way of truth. He deferred to no one. And he did not consider the utility, the status, the wealth of the person to whom he was, that he was addressing. And the Bible tells us that it's always God's way to choose the people that we despise. So, do I... Do I hope, do I pray for you that God will work in your hearts and make you like God, like Jesus? not telling you to change your car, not telling you not to get a Ph.D. I'm not telling you what you should do. But I am telling you what Jesus is like and that he's he's our model. Who are your friends and how helpful are they? You invited somebody home for dinner today. Did you do what Jesus did, said, which is he said, invite somebody home that can't repay you. Let's pray.